all COVID restrictions are coming to an end, including self-isolation when you're positive. Boris Johnson has announced today that that is set to be a reality from the end of this month. Is this how we learn to live with COVID? Is this the, the freedom that vaccinations has given us? Or is this a desperate attempt by a politician to try and save his career, which could prove very damaging for the rest of us? That's the question we'll be answering tonight. I'm joined all evening by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing good, Michael. How are you doing? I am very well. I'm kind of glad that there was a while where every episode where we didn't talk about COVID, I was like, this is amazing. We're having a show about COVID. But we, we haven't talked about it for such a long time that now I'm actually glad we get to go back to all of those graphs. I have mixed feelings about this announcement today. Tonight, we are also going to be talking about the fallout from the mob harassing Keir Starmer, more Downing Street party picks, Sadiq Khan going in on Cressida Dick, and Boris Johnson's kind of wrongen hires who he has promoted in his team. Before Prime Minister's questions this lunchtime, Boris Johnson needed a headline-grabbing announcement to raise the spirits of his mutinous MPs. He chose this. Mr Speaker, I can tell the House today that it is my intention to return on the first day after the half-term recess to present our strategy for living with COVID. Provided the current encouraging trends in the data continue, it is my expectation that we will be able to end the last domestic restrictions, including the legal requirement to self-isolate if you test positive, a full month early, Mr Speaker. Yes, all remaining restrictions in England are set to end, and that includes the requirement to self-isolate after a positive test. That has been brought forward from the end of March when all COVID legislation was due to expire. So that would have expired without any decision being made in Parliament. Given the hold COVID rules have had over our lives for the past two years, this is a pretty big deal. But is it an announcement driven by science or by politics? This is what Robert Peston had to say. No one in or around SAGE and NerveTag is aware of any scientific advice given to the PM that the requirement to isolate for those infected with COVID-19 should be terminated from end of the month. It's politics, isn't it? He says that's a typical reaction. Christina Pagel of Indie Sage agrees. She says dropping isolation makes work and socialising riskier and boosters are waning. COVID keeps evolving and it's harder to know about local case levels. Basically, government plan that we will all get COVID several times, like a cold, but with a much more dangerous disease, not science-based. Personally, I have no doubt whatsoever this was a decision driven by politics, not by science, or indeed any other idea regarding societal happiness. This was an attempt by Boris Johnson to please his backbench MPs. They have, at every stage in this pandemic, opposed public health measures. And while Boris Johnson was correct that COVID data is moving in the right direction, the stats really aren't particularly reassuring. Confirmed cases are well below their peak but remain high. Part of that decline may also be down to reduced testing. The ONS, which does a weekly infection survey, suggests cases might actually be rising again. So some uncertainty there. One thing we can be sure of, hospitalizations are on the way down. But over a thousand admissions a day is not a great place to be, even if many of those will be patients admitted with COVID instead of admitted because of it. Finally, deaths, while relatively low when compared to the rest of the pandemic, the daily figures are still significant. Around 200 people are still dying every day with COVID mentioned on their death certificate. 
All that said, there are arguments as to why it might be time to consider ending all legally mandated restrictions. Thanks to vaccination and Omicron being less severe, the risk of ending up in ICU is now tiny compared to earlier in the pandemic. A recent French study suggests that while an unvaccinated 70-year-old with Delta would have had a 7% chance of needing treatment in ICU, for a boosted 70-year-old with Omicron, that figure drops to 0.25%. Another study, this time using ONS statistics, compared flu to Omicron before and after vaccination. In mid-2020, for someone over 60, COVID was at least 13 times more deadly than flu. By early 2022, so that's with widespread vaccination and with Omicron dominant, COVID was still deadlier than flu, but only by double the amount. Finally, if England does go ahead with dropping all restrictions, it will not be the first country to do so. South Africa dropped the requirement for asymptomatic COVID positive people to self-isolate at the end of last month. And Denmark has now dropped the legal requirement for anyone with COVID to self-isolate. They still advise you to do it, but it's, you're not breaking the law if you don't. To discuss Johnson's announcement, I'm now joined by Oliver Barnes, health and science reporter at the FT, the papers whose graphs, as you can tell, I am just constantly stealing for this show. Welcome back to Tiski Sauer. So the question that's framed is, do you think, from your perspective, this is driven by politics or science, this decision to end even self-isolation at the end of this month? Well, I think the framing of the announcement today at PMQs was there was a clearly a political element to it, right? The Coronavirus Act was put into law, I think, on the 25th of March 2020, and it hasn't gone anywhere ever since. And it looks good for Johnson to play to his kind of more libertarian wing of his party to say we're getting rid of the legal underpinnings to self-isolation requirements. Now, the kind of science of it, I think, is to be determined because when uh, recess ends and Parliament returns in a week or so's time, we're going to understand what the guidance looks like, i.e. what the official advice from the, UK, from the UK Health Security Agency is. I expect that will probably still be to self-isolate if you can. And then also the effect that this will have on measures like the self-isolation payment scheme, where certain people on lower salaries can get access to a £500 um, stipend to help them self-isolate, and also the impact this will have on the funding for testing. All of that is kind of to be determined. Um, And I think that will end up maybe playing a bigger effect, having a bigger effect on this than just the move from a legislative approach to a kind of advice guidance based approach. There's two directions this could go in. One is to say, you know, not that much changes, but we're taking away the force of the law. I mean, you can argue, I think, quite powerfully that, you know, in extreme circumstance where this was 13 times as deadly as flu, then having laws that we would usually have thought of as quite authoritarian, you have to stay in your house so that you don't pass on a disease. They were justified when it's only twice as dangerous as flu. Maybe we can do this voluntarily. So it could just be moving it, as you say, from being mandated to being advised. Or this could be the beginning of a completely different approach to to Omicron and to COVID more generally, which is where we say, we're just going to stop thinking about it. We're going to stop getting tested. If you're not that ill, you don't really need to know. If you pass it on, it's not that big a deal. Better if you don't, but not the end of the world if you do. And so we just start treating it like any other virus, which we don't normally test for. We just sort of think, well, I might have the flu. I might have a cold, whatever. Let's get on with it. Do you think this is more the the former or or the latter? Is this a massive change or is this just a shift from it being legislative to it being advisory? 
Well, I think there are definitely driving factors towards the latter, right? I can't imagine that the Treasury is going to be hugely comfortable with paying £37 billion every two years towards test and trace, you know, ad infinitum. So I expect there's some kind of pressure. And obviously, that libertarian wing of the party that wants these restrictions to end probably also wants a kind of smaller government budget, too. So I imagine there's going to be pressure heading in that direction to start to start crunching down the test and trace system as well. I think Denmark and Sweden are interesting kind of leading indicators on this because Sweden's dropped a whole suite of restrictions today. Denmark made the move at the beginning of February. What Denmark did was get rid of the legal underpinnings for self-isolation rules. So now it's, you know, it's strongly encouraged. And obviously there's high levels of government trust and compliance in Denmark and good sick pay. So a lot of people are still doing it. But what Denmark retained was a fairly large chunk of its PCR testing system. It's kind of reduced the amount of lateral flow tests available, but you can still get a PCR test quite easily. When in Sweden, I think they've kept um, the kind of strong advice. They never actually had laws underpinning um, their self-isolation rules, but they've kept strong advice, but they've got rid of large swathes of their testing system. And I think the suspicion might be that given those factors of trying to push down the spending on, on the pandemic and also the kind of let it rip mentality of certain portions of the Conservative Party, that we may end up with that approach, which would involve, you know, kind of forgetting about COVID. Um, that would not be scientifically smart. Um, I think the main thing, too, is you'd also want to leave an infrastructure in place that if there were to be another variant emerge later in the year or, you know, we have waning immunity and we start to see a pickup in infections again, you can easily rebuild that infrastructure. There are some public health officials and scientists who kind of do seem to say, you know, who I don't think come from the sort of cynical perspective of we, we want to reduce the cost to the Treasury, whatever the consequences. People like Alison Pollock or Francois Ballou, sort of people who are saying, we need to move beyond this. We're treating this in a way more seriously than it needs to be treated, given the situation we're in, given what the disease looks like at this point in time. Is that still a fringe opinion in contact with people who are on SAGE or, or various government advisors? Is that still something which is very much a, a fringe opinion, just to say, let's, let's just properly live with it to the extent of basically forgetting about it? I suspect most people, the most, most, I speak to people on SAGE quite often and also on some of the other government advisory committees. You know, they're human beings as well. and They're aware that kind of normality existed for a reason, right? We human beings interact we want to like spend time with other people. We can't forever restrain our behaviours in relation to an infectious disease that's having less of an effect on our hospitals, causing less severe disease. So I expect the, the approach that they would want is, is probably quite a balanced one. What the tweet from Robert Peston said earlier, you know, that Sage hadn't discussed this, there hasn't been active discussion of dropping these measures, but there was going to be because these measures were expiring on March the 24th. What Johnson's move does is bring the expiration forward to the end of February instead. And I expect that a lot of members of SAGE would have seen that March 24th expiry date for the Coronavirus Act and assumed that the government was probably going to push ahead with that. So what they'll want to understand is what the picture looks like afterwards and what the recommendation looks like coming from the UK Health Security Agency. You know, ultimately, a lot of people don't self-isolate now, right? You know, there's a lot of asymptomatic infections, so no one ever clocks if they have COVID and they're walking around spreading COVID. There's also a number of people who, because of their like employment circumstances, 
don't end up self-isolating. So we're really looking at the chunk who currently do, and we're wondering how many of those will still do so once it moves from legislative approach to advice-based approach. And that's kind of to be determined. An indicator on that, though, which I think is interesting, and obviously this took place within the kind of emergency Omicron response in December, but all the lateral flow testing stuff in relation to going and visiting your relatives, elderly relatives, take a lateral flow test. None of that was legally mandated. And people did it and did it a lot. And I expect that there's certain behaviors we've picked up and people on SAGE and SPIBE, the Behavioral Modeling, Modeling Committee, would be aware of this. There's certain behaviors that we've picked up over the course of the last two years that we're just not going to shake overnight because people are aware of that personal risk calculation now more than ever. So in us kind of learning to live with the virus, it really kind of seems to mean a move from this kind of collective legislative base, like top-down approach to people making more individual risk assessments and decisions. I want to go to a tweet. Um, This is from Araminti. They say, bizarre decision. I'm triple jabbed and caught COVID from someone who was triple jabbed. I was really unwell for three days and now on day eight, I'm still testing positive. Imagine how many I could have infected some vulnerable if I hadn't stayed home. I think for lots of people, that is quite a common experience. You could also say, you know, you were sick for three days and now you're still testing positive. Would that have been similar with flu? The bit I want to focus on, though, because this is the thing I think we do need to, you know, always take most seriously is is what you put in brackets. We, we could or you could have if you hadn't isolated past this onto vulnerable people. And Oliver, you saw in my introduction, I showed actually some of the Financial Times graphs about how risks had mm-hmm. fallen for test case in that example was was a 70 year old. What about people who, you know, we used to call at the start of the pandemic clinically extremely vulnerable. I think they got rid of that category, but people who could be any age, but who have particular conditions, which mean that they are understandably still very, very concerned about catching COVID and so are very worried about announcements like this. What is the latest data telling us on the risks to people with conditions that make them especially vulnerable to a virus like coronavirus? Can I just touch on Aaron's tweet really quickly? Because I think it raises an important point. The, the question that I have after that is, would he still isolate in the future when this when the law changes? And some people, you know, I don't know what his job is, but if he works in a kind of nice white collar job where they enable him to do so, he might still be able to. So therefore, it doesn't change much. Does he work for someone where they would force him to come in? Then it does change. And that's how, you know, when we see it shake out, that's that, that, that's the effect that's kind of significant. The, the, the second point you raised, though, Michael, I think is a really important one. and We can't ignore it, which is there were three million people on the shielding list who were classified as clinically extremely vulnerable. They were deigned to be you know, a severe risk of COVID, the vaccines will have reduced that risk. But, you know, because they started with a higher risk, that relative reduction still means they have quite a substantial risk. That's obviously also the case for older generations. Throughout the Omicron wave, the infection rates amongst the very oldest, fortunately, have been the lowest of anyone in society. If they are now exposed to people on a more regular basis, who are um, infectious, that would would not be good and would be concerning for them. I think the group that it's most unpleasant for, though, is the 500,000 or so immunosuppressed people, people who, you know, might have got transplants or be on chemotherapy. These groups generally haven't responded really at all, uh, many of them, to the vaccinations. 
And that's why the, the guidance as it is in the UK is that actually they can get a fourth vaccine dose. And that's on the basis of just the assumption that if they're not responding to two, let's give them three, let's give them an extra one on top of that, let's give them four. And we don't know how much protection they'll have from vaccination. I expect there'll be a huge degree of, of anxiety around that. And that's why the big debate at the moment, or at least in the pieces that I've been writing, is about this kind of when we can start to think of COVID as an endemic disease. And, you know, endemic doesn't mean mild, it doesn't mean no impact on people. And this is ultimately why it kind of boils down to something beyond science. It's something maybe even beyond politics. It's kind of philosophical almost, which is how much, you know, tens of millions of people in society should adjust their risk for a smaller group in society. And, and people clearly have very, very different perspectives on, on the degree to which we should do so. I would guess a lot of people, once we move beyond the laws, will still do things that benefit people who are still vulnerable. By which I mean a lot of people will still stay at home when they're infectious and they'll probably do so for other viruses now, like flu, that they when they didn't beforehand. And I expect there'll still be quite high levels of masking. The masks are no longer legally mandated in a lot of public places at the moment. You still see people using them. They're still encouraged on on the tube and on, on TFL in London. At some point that maybe goes and people will still use them nonetheless. So it's going to be interesting to see how many of these measures built around protecting the most vulnerable society, how many people decide to take forward individually. Oliver Barnes, pleasure to have you on the show. Very interesting, very balanced. I'm sure we'll get you back on soon, or I suppose, depending on what happens. I'm sure we won't be forgetting about it to the, to the extent that we won't need expert guests on it anymore. We'll, we'll speak soon. Thank you very much. Thanks. Let's go to our next story. Boris Johnson is desperate to move on from the row about his lockdown parties, but that effort keeps being interrupted by the leaking of new photos. And that has happened again, right in the middle of PMQs. So that was leaked to the mirror. And at first, when this was published, I thought it was you know, relatively weak source. We already knew Boris Johnson hosted a Christmas quiz in December 2020. We already knew it was breaking the rules because he's with people outside his household for a social event. But to me, it never looked as brazen as some of the other examples. The quiz was on Zoom. You know, it didn't look like they'd just forgotten that COVID existed. And for me, an open bottle of Prosecco doesn't change that much. However, a video has been brought to my attention that puts the image in a slightly different light. This is Nadim Zahawi justifying the quiz speaking last December. I have to say to you, you just mentioned the quiz night. And that picture today, what do we see in that picture? We see a prime minister on a virtual uh, quiz night for 10 to 15 minutes to thank his staff, who, by the way, had no choice but to come in every single day. Let me just finish. Let me just finish this point, right? Sitting in his office with the two people who are closest working with him, no alcohol on the table, not drinking, right? On a Zoom call or a Teams call, on virtual call, respecting the, the lockdown rules. No alcohol on the table. Very, very awkward. Dahlia, what was your reaction to that? Does it change things for you that there was an open bottle of Prosecco on the table? I mean, no, I think we've heard enough now to know exactly what the situation was. And the question isn't about, you know, was there an open bottle of Prosecco or was there drinking at this particular event? What we know is that a significant amount of gathering of mixing that regular people would have and many regular people did actually end up being prosecuted for was happening at the very top. And so 
this particular picture or you know any other kinds of specific snapshots that we might have access to doesn't actually make the difference because the actual thrust of the truth and the thing that's important, which is that the government was breaking their own rules, breaking rules that ordinary, ordinary people, regular people were being punished for, and also breaking rules in a way that could have created, could have meant, meant that people got infected with a virus and then spread that out into their into their communities. And we also know the the contempt and the recklessness with which Boris Johnson led us throughout the pandemic, particularly in those early stages, including to, but also in addition to his own personal breaking of those rules. So the details at this point with the amount that we do know are irrelevant and, and sucking us into the specificities of the details, which is what Nadim, sorry, I've forgotten his, name, his surname there, my brain just blanked, and his advisors and other people who are who are coming out to bat for him, that's sort of much more in their interest because it distracts us from the the broader thrust, which which is undebatable, frankly, at this point. Nadim Zahawi, that was a surname you were looking for, who presumably feels a little bit embarrassed now that he was sent out on Sky to say it was all fine because there was no alcohol on the table. And now we know one thing there definitively was, was alcohol on the table. Let's move on to the other big Boris Johnson story of the week. When deciding whether to falsely imply Keir Starmer had protected Jimmy Savile, Boris Johnson faced a dilemma. On the one hand, whether or not the slur was true, Johnson wanted members of the public to have that association in the back of their minds. On the other, if it became too obvious what Johnson was doing and who he was appealing to, the stunt could backfire. As we know, Boris Johnson would ultimately take the risk, and he may be happy that Starmer and Savile are now two names often said in the same sentence on the evening news. He will, however, be less pleased that it's now obvious what pond scum he finds himself associated with. These were the scenes in Westminster on Monday afternoon, which have now been viewed by millions. So along with protesters telling Keir Starmer he should be hung, you heard them shout, why are you protecting paedophiles and just Jimmy Savile? Now, Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, was quick to draw a connection between Johnson's comments and the mob's actions. I know it's been reported that some abuse was directed to the right honourable member, the leader of the opposition yesterday, related to claims made by the Prime Minister in this chamber. But regardless of yesterday's incident, I made it clear last week that while the Prime Minister's words were not disorderly, they were inappropriate. As I said then, these sorts of comments only inflame opinions and generate disregard for the House, and it is not acceptable. Our words have consequences, and we should always be mindful of that fight. Labour's Chris Bryant went further and referred to the smear as being part of a deliberate strategy to stir up hatred. Well, let's go through the precise time frame of it. So last Monday, the Prime Minister was in terrible 
problems because he knew that many Tory MPs were absolutely furious with him for what all that had gone on in Downing Street, the chaos and the lying to Parliament. And so he had a conversation with his advisers before he came to the House of Commons. And they and, and he somebody suggested he suggested perhaps that he would raise this matter, this um uh, this uh, conspiracy theory, which has normally come from the very far right. Um, and his advisor said, no, you mustn't do it. That's not a proper way to, um, to proceed. And yet he deliberately did so. Um, and to me, that's the key point here. It is deliberate. It's not accidental. It's an attempt to incite a mob, either online or physically in person. And the thing is, we know how this how this plays out when politicians go down this deeply cynical route, because we saw it in the United States of America. It's exactly the same as uh, as Donald Trump's um, playbook. It's profoundly dangerous. It's, <laughs> da it's and it's not the way we do politics in this country. It's so un-British. In our next segment, we'll be disputing that last claim. For the Tories, that behaviour, far from being un-British, is at the heart of their politics. But Bryant's information is interesting. Johnson made the remark despite the advice of his advisers, and indeed we saw his chief advisor, Manira Mirza, quit over the smear. In a report, the Huffington Post found a Tory MP who seemed to confirm that the comment was pretty calculated. So the Huffington Post report, this wasn't something said off the cuff, this is something we know people are talking about. One Tory MP said they claimed it had been mentioned on the doorstep during the Batley and Spend by-election last summer and that Johnson knew what he was doing when he made the comment. They even suggested Conservative campaign HQ would be stockpiling stories on Starmer's time as Director of Public Prosecutions. I'd expect to see some more of this sort of thing in the run-up to the next general election, they added. Still, some Tory frontbenchers just refused to see any link between Johnson's smear and the mob that harassed Starmer. Here's Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Tech and the Digital Economy, Chris Philp, talking to Kay Burley. I don't think you can make a link reasonably so between what? what the Prime Minister said and the harassment and intimidation. This group of people there were talking about a number of things beyond, as well as Jimmy Savile. They're people who have harassed other public figures, including journalists, over the last uh, year or two. Um, so I don't think you can make that link. And when it came to the journalists and when it came to other people that they were harassing, did they mention Jimmy Savile then? Well, they mentioned all kinds of things, they as they did last Jimmy night. Did they mention Jimmy Savile then? Well, no, because that wasn't an issue at the time. But, they, exactly. but, but, the, but the harassment... Exactly. But the, hang on, Kay, the harassment last night, they were talking about a whole number of things. They, were talking about, they mostly talked about Julian Assange. If you listen to the entire clip, they were mostly going on about Julian Assange for some reason. Kay Burley saying, exactly, exactly. Very well done, I thought. Whatever Philp thinks or doesn't think, recent polling suggests that the country isn't buying it. So a snap poll from Savanta Comrade shows 69% of people say the Prime Minister is responsible for Keir Starmer being harassed. 54% of 2019 Conservative voters also say this. 68% of, of all people say he should publicly apologise to Starmer, or all those polled, sorry. And 68% said he should withdraw the comments. And 64% say politics has gotten nastier in the last five years. So an uh, overwhelming majority of the public there suggesting that Boris Johnson is to blame for Keir Starmer being harassed by people in the street and an overwhelming majority saying he should withdraw the comments and publicly apologise. Dahlia, do you think that mob harassment of Keir Starmer and them repeating the words essentially that Boris Johnson used in Parliament, that he's someone who protects paedophiles and, and then mentioning... Jimmy Savile. Do you think that has shown this stunt to have kind of backfired for the Prime Minister because he can't now distance himself from the sort of dark forces he was ultimately appealing to? Well, 
This is a, a very uh, classic strategy for right-wing politicians like Johnson. Uh, and we have, we have to understand figures like him as part of quite a dangerous spectrum because the strategy is play up to certain kinds of respectability. So the liberal commentariat can kind of find excuses for you um, when they need to, whilst also giving just enough so that your far right base, you know, you can call on them with legitimacy in times of need. And, you know, we've saw, we saw this throughout the Trump presidency, although I think Trump made even fewer attempts to play up to any kind of respectability. But because of that, I don't think it will necessarily backfire because it's not the, the act itself was not targeted towards people who would be disgusted by it, which is actually a majority of people, but rather it's meant to try and in his moment of weakness, consolidate a very particular part of his base, you know, a, a hard right base invested in this kind of conspiratorial thinking, which is it's yes, very small, but it, it's very committed and it has a role to play within the Conservative Party and particularly the Conservative membership. When Boris Johnson was, was in the race for, for Tory leadership, I actually, I went on Sky News and I, I made this argument that Boris Johnson was kind of proto-fascist. And at that point, at that time, the point that I was trying to make was that fascism doesn't start with people marching down the streets in uniform. It starts with the normalization and empowerment of far-right talking points in the mainstream. It starts with people who have material and political power, like Boris Johnson, calling on and relying on far-right political forces for their legitimacy in times of political crisis. That's when it becomes really dangerous. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing him trying to consolidate himself during a, a moment of political weakness. And, you know, he might not use these talking points every day. You know, he, he doesn't always compare Muslim women to letterboxes or say derogatory uh, things about people, um, people of the global South. But that implicit reliance and, and grooming of this logic and of this constituency and relying on these weapons in his arsenal during those times of crisis is why he's dangerous. And it's why Johnson always has been dangerous. And it's also, unfortunately, to look at it in a more short-term sense, just another example of, of Johnson acting with total impunity and irresponsibility and being motivated by nothing else but his own political survival, regardless of whatever kind of carnage or collateral damage that will cause. You know, much like the decision to prematurely end mandatory isolation before the scientific advice has properly come out in favor of that, you know, regardless of what impact that might have, the deliberate deploying of this particular talking point is also, it's a way of trying to appeal to a key part and consolidate his base and recover power. But much like with the end to isolation rules, this isn't, what's at stake here is not just silly Westminster games. Like what kind of irreparable damage could this cause? And for what? So that he can continue to be prime minister? And what this shows me is that the kind of very empty 
apologies and, and promises of change that we have heard over the past couple of weeks from Boris Johnson, this just goes to show that this leopard has not and will never change his ghastly and power-hungry spots. And so that's what we're seeing right now. And the reason that the question of backfiring is a difficult one is because, as I said, the target isn't us. The target isn't people that would hear this and be disgusted by it. The target is a particular faction within the conservative base, within particularly the membership that hold, that are part of this particular political milieu. That's the kind of the, the people that he's speaking to. So what they feel about it is really what matters because a general election is, is far away. His, what he needs to do is consolidate his own personal coalition. So the question is, will it do that? And that, that kind of remains, remains to be seen. Straight on to our next story. When attacking Boris Johnson for his smear on Keir Starmer, Labour MPs have frequently suggested that the Prime Minister is a completely different kettle of fish to his Tory predecessors. This is Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting. I don't know what's happened to the Conservative Party, but I'd say to Conservative colleagues across the House of Commons listening to your programme this afternoon, Theresa May wouldn't have behaved like this. David Cameron wouldn't have behaved like this. John Major wouldn't have behaved like this. Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have behaved like this. What has happened to the Conservative Party of Winston Churchill for a Conservative Party leader to ape and parrot far-right messages but, that led to the kind of behaviour that we saw yesterday? It's a total the, disgrace. The direct blame, you would agree, I'm sure, lies with the mob who threatened your party leader. The mob have to take responsibility for their actions and the Prime Minister has to accept that his words have consequences. Okay. And Conservative MPs have to accept that his behaviour, in which they are complicit, reflects poorly on the Conservative Party, which is no longer the party of Winston Churchill, no longer the party of Mrs Thatcher. It's the party of a leader who apes and parrots far-right memes and rhetoric. What on earth has happened to the Conservative Party? I don't know. But right. I think Conservative well, MPs need to recognise on their shoulders. You heard there Wes Streeting say that no other Tory leader would behave like Boris Johnson. They might have had policies Wes Streeting disagreed with, but unlike Johnson, they would not stoop so low as to smear the opposition. Well, that's not quite true. To remind ourselves, these are the leaders Streeting said would not behave like Johnson. So he tweeted um, that clip we just showed you saying, Theresa May wouldn't behave like this, David Cameron wouldn't, John Major wouldn't, Margaret Thatcher wouldn't. And then he mentions that this is the party of Winston Churchill. We can go through all of those former prime ministers chronologically, starting with Sir Winston Churchill. Churchill, of course, served in a war cabinet with his opposite number, Clement Attlee, but that wasn't enough to stop him levelling spurious fear-mongering at the Labour leader. Launching the Tories' 1945 campaign, Churchill warned there would be Gestapo in Britain if socialists win. Of course, Attlee's party, which Churchill was smearing, is the one that now every Labour MP claims as their inspiration. Attlee was the Prime Minister who founded our great national treasure, the NHS. Surely no Tory leader could have promoted lies to whip up fear against him, or no other leader other than Boris Johnson. Well, they did, and it was Winston Churchill. Next to Maggie Thatcher. Thatcher might not have explicitly claimed that her opposite number protected paedophiles. She did, however, claim Labour were protecting a group just as nefarious. Gay kids. This 1987 poster reads, Is this Labour's idea of comprehensive education? It then shows a book titled Young, Gay and Proud. 
heaven forbid, queer kids learn not to be ashamed of themselves. In her defence, one thing that does separate Thatcher from Johnson is she wouldn't have used Savile as an attack line. Definitely not. That's only, though, because they were such close friends. John Major was also not afraid of scaremongering. In the lead-up to the 1992 general election, he suggested increased immigration under Labour could lead to race riots. Then, in 1997, the Tories depicted Blair as a literal demon. The poster says, new Labour, new danger. The danger presumably being the gates of hell opening after Labour introduced Shawstar or increased funding to hospitals. It was not a preemptive warning about subsequent illegal wars in the Middle East, which the Tories, of course, supported at the time. The next Tory Prime Minister loved a good smear. David Cameron said this about Jeremy Corbyn. My friends, we cannot let that man inflict his security-threatening, terrorist-sympathising, Britain-hating ideology on this country we love. Those smears were just as bad as what Boris Johnson threw at Keir Starmer. And unlike those smears thrown at leaders before Blair, they should be fresh in West Streeting's memory. This was all very recent. So you have to ask, why didn't those ones register for the Shadow Health Secretary? Well, probably because he was happy to go along with them at the time, making them all the more damaging, of course. Finally, Theresa May, her record tends to get airbrushed nowadays, but when she was leader, one of her backbenchers had to apologise for sending this tweet. Corbyn sold British secrets to communist spies. Get some perspective, mate. Your priorities are a bit awry. Ben Bradley had to apologise for that after legal action was taken. And May's response to the whole ridiculous Czech spy meme was not to call it out. It was to lean into it. She encouraged Corbyn to be open about the ridiculous spy claims. Dahlia, what was Wes Streeting thinking um, when he said that Boris Johnson is completely unlike any previous Tory leader and that we've never seen anything like this before? Career politicians like Wes Streeting are not here to think. They're here to to play essentially what they see as, as a game. You know, that's what this entire thing is. And I think the points that you make are, are really important, particularly about the the point with Jeremy Corbyn and how, you know, West Streeting was happy to go along with those kinds of smears and, and et cetera, et cetera. But I also think that there's another point here, which is this comment and the kind of moralizing of figures like Thatcher, of figures like Churchill, saying, you know, they would never stoop so low as to smear the opposition. It, it really shows me about a lot about what Streeting thinks is at stake here. It speaks to this idea that that politics is it's some kind, it's just this sort of gentleman's game. And there's, you know, there's codes of conduct and there's these unwritten rules that are supposed to be followed. And, and the worst thing you could do is, is not follow those particular rules of decorum, etc. And in the case of Johnson, that code of conduct that he violated is smearing other members of, of the political caste. You know, that's kind of very off limits. That feels very personal. It feels like, oh, you know, we're playing a game of football here and you just, you know, picked up the ball and ran with it and chucked it into the goal. Like, that's not fair or that's not what we agreed here. And so within that context, you know, the smearing of members of the opposition is something that he sees as more outlandish than the very, like, he apparently sees as more outlandish and objectionable than the very material acts 
of, to be honest, you know, economic and social warfare that many of the politicians that he is virtue, like giving moral superiority to in that context that, that they have committed. You know, the, these kinds of these kinds of policies, um, which are not just down with Tory politicians, but also have been Labour policy as well, particularly during the Blair years that that streeting is so fond of, is seen as kind of beside the point. You know, was was Boris Johnson bringing up Savile in that context wrong? Absolutely. But was it as bad as misleading Parliament and the public into a war that killed a million Iraqis? No. But the latter is seen much more kind of abstractly and and dispassionately than the smearing act, which is taken much more personally. And it kind of reminds me a little bit last week we talked about the the just bizarreness of, of Ian Blackford and Dawn Butler being chucked out of Parliament for accusing Boris Johnson of lying, but Boris Johnson actually lying doesn't get him kicked out of, of Parliament. And even to come back to this point as well about ha- what this tells us about how politicians like Streeting view what politics is there to do and view what is at stake, even within this particular context, like ignore all the historical stuff, the problem with what Johnson said, like the main problem with what Johnson said wasn't just smearing the reputation of Starmer. It was specifically, you know, calling back to a far right talking point and emboldening a set of politics and signifying his own willingness to to shift towards appealing to some of the most extreme parts of the conservative coalition. You know, that's what's really concerning and that's what's at the forefront here rather than the breaking of this gentleman's agreement in the smearing of, of a colleague. Obviously, you know, Streeting did mention this, but it feels like his greatest passion is sort of reserved for that kind of, oh, you, you smeared one of your own, you know, and that, that's really the grave, the grave infraction here. And I just think it reveals a lot about what politicians like Streeting think is going on here, what they think is, is at stake and what they think we're all here to do essentially those of us who are interested in what's happening politically. And then Corbyn obviously wasn't one of their own, which I think is, you know, I, I see what you're saying. Like, you know, the policy is more meaningful than even however they treat Corbyn. But I do also think, you know, that contrast is just so strong. He was fair game. Sir Keir Starmer isn't. I do think the sermon is Sir Keir Starmer is not fair game. And that's why this is completely unacceptable. That's not, it is unacceptable. It's unacceptable to make up stuff about someone in parliament and to sort of spuriously connect your opponent with a with a you know a notorious paedophile, but it's not out of the ordinary in British politics. We saw it happen to Corbyn for four or five years, and where Streeting, you know, in more cases than not, joined in. Let's go to our next story. Sadiq Khan has revealed his fury over a recent report uncovering yet more evidence of gross misogyny, homophobia, and racism in the Met, and he has finally, finally pointed the finger at Met Commissioner Cressida Dick. Speaking on the Today programme, he demanded immediate action. If I believe that the Commissioner can't win back the trust and confidence of uh, Londoners, if I believe uh, that the Commissioner doesn't understand and doesn't have a plan to root out what is clearly racist, sexist, misogynistic, uh, unprofessional behaviour. to come up with a plan then. Is that is that what you're saying? Because in relation to Wayne Cousins, there's the Louise Casey review underway. Are you essentially saying that this is a McPherson-style moment and it needs that kind of response? It's more profound. Let me tell you why. 
more profound uh, than McPherson, which McPherson, is a finding of institutional racism. M- McPherson took, took t- two years at the public inquiry, then another year to come up with uh, his 70-plus uh, recommendations. Uh, Louise Casey has started her report this week. She'll take a number of months to come up with her recommendations and to look into what's going on in the uh, police service. The investigation being conducted on behalf of the Home Secretary, the nationwide investigation will take a number of months. We can't wait. Uh, Let me tell you why I say we can't wait. We police in this country upon a very important principle of one of consent. If it is the case that Londoners, whether you're a woman or a girl, whether you're a person of colour or uh, you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community, haven't got confidence in the police service to come forward when you're a victim of crime, to come forward when you're a witness of crime, to come forward and join the police service. That's a problem for now. Sadiq Khan was speaking a week after an investigation revealed groups of police officers had traded deeply offensive, misogynist, racist and homophobic messages on WhatsApp and Facebook. An independent office for police conduct found that messages exchanged between 2016 and 2018 in groups of up to 19 officers, mainly based at Charing Cross Police Station, amounted to bullying and harassment. The messages are absolutely vile. A warning, they make reference to rape, violence against women and killing children. So some of the messages which were revealed was one police officer who wrote this. Getting a woman into bed is like spreading butter. It can be done with a bit of effort using a credit card, but it's quicker and easier just to use a knife. It's a message from a Metropolitan Police officer. Another sent this. My dad kidnapped some African children and used them to make dog food. A male officer sent these three messages to a female officer. I would happily rape you. If I was single, I would actually hate fuck you. If I was single, I would happily chloroform you. So that's messages sent by a male officer to a female officer. And then we have uh, a conversation between two officers. Um, So you've got officer one, I effing need to take my bird out, won't see her until next Saturday, then I have to work, promise to take her out the Friday after, making it up to her from when I backhanded her. Then officer two says, grab her by the pussy. Officer one says, you ever slapped your missus? And then officer one says, it makes them love you more. Seriously, since I did that, she won't leave me alone. Now I know why these daft and the C words are getting murdered by their spastic boyfriends. Apologies for the language here, but I think it is important to read this all out. Knock a bird about and she will love you. Human nature, they are biologically programmed to like that shit. Then officer two says, Lamau, and officer one says, I'm right though. These are just some of the horrific, I mean, I'm sure you were genuinely shocked by those messages. These are just some of the many, many horrific messages uncovered by the IOPC. Following that report, Cressida Dick apologized saying there is no place in the Met for the appalling behaviour displayed by officers at Charing Cross Police Station. Their conduct does not represent our values, and I am deeply sorry to everyone. They have failed. Those words might sound nice enough, but they do ring pretty hollow when we consider the fact that just four of the 14 officers involved in circulating those messages were sacked, one resigned. Unbelievably, the remaining nine are still serving, and two have been promoted. Empty apologies have, of course, now become Dick's specialism. Here are a few more recent examples. I recognise that for some people, a precious bond of trust has been damaged. If those officers' actions have added to the family's unimaginable distress, then I apologise from the bottom of my heart. And I don't rule out in this case. And as I said, I, you know, my senior officer has said, has, I didn't say this, but she said, I'm sorry to, to, to Ms Williams for the distress it has clearly caused her. And I say that too. I 
have the deepest feelings for Daniel Morgan's family. They have shown extraordinary grit and determination and uh, courage. And yesterday I apologised again to them for um, our failings. You heard there Dick apologising for four incidents. The first was the police response to the murder of Sarah Everard. Sarah Everard was kidnapped, raped and murdered by a serving Met police officer. Then when women held a vigil in her memory, they were treated like criminals by the police. The second apology was for the events following the murders of Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry. Their bodies were found by family members after police had been slow to initiate a search. Once the police did turn up, two officers took pictures of the dead bodies. The photos were then doctored and shared with other officers on WhatsApp. The third apology you heard was for the stop and search of athlete Bianca Williams, who has won gold for Britain at the Commonwealth Games. Williams was stopped by the police while in a car with her partner and three-month-old baby. Three of the officers involved are under investigation for gross misconduct. That final apology followed the results of an independent inquiry into the 1987 murder of private detective Daniel Morgan. That revealed extensive police corruption, including attempts by Cressida Dick herself to interfere in and obstruct the inquiry. So how did Khan respond to all of these failures? Well, in July 2021, just days after the Daniel Morgan report was released and three months after Everard's murder, Khan said this in response to Andrew Marr. Do you have faith in Cressida Dick or should you resign? I've got faith in Cressida Dick. I've got full, full confidence in Cressida uh, Dick. Khan would go on to support a two-year extension of Dick's term as head of the Metropolitan Police. So why this sudden change of heart? Khan has now said that Dick is on notice and has a matter of days to give him a satisfactory plan for how she will handle this latest scandal. So what happens if she does not come back with what you consider a good enough response on both of the fronts that you've talked about in, in days and weeks, which is the time frame you've outlined? Well, look, I'm not talking hypotheticals, but if, that's, if it was the case, anybody who works for me hasn't got my trust and confidence. More importantly, hasn't got the trust and confidence of uh, Londoners. I won't keep silent about that. I take action. So what happened? What changed? Did, did Khan suddenly realise he was wasting good political capital on defending his police chief? Uh, the WhatsApp messages are disgusting, that's for sure. But does Khan really think they're worse than the Sarah Everard case or the Daniel Morgan corruption findings or the treatment Koshka Duff received or the Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman murders? Why this sudden change now? Dahlia? Help us out here. What's going on? Why has the tone we're hearing from Sadiq Khan suddenly changed so dramatically? What's going on is that thanks to a broader movement, social movement that is taking place to increase scrutiny of and, and question the, the unbridled power that is wielded in this country by the police, we are now, we've created the space for a rigorous and proper conversation around the concrete evidence that we now have an insight into what has always been true. It's really important to understand that this kind of ideology is, is something that has existed throughout the history of the Met Police. And that's why we cannot blame it on just a few rotten apples. Uh, it's far too historically continuous for that. And specifically, this kind of, of dehumanizing and demeaning ideology that is held by the police, particularly towards communities that are over-policed, so people of color, working class people, women, 
these are ideologies that that those over-policed communities have always known existed, have always tried to ring the alarm on it and have been systematically ignored. And so you, you asked that important question, which is why now? You know, we have known what the Met Police is. We have known specifically who Cressida Dick is. We saw it in her role in the murder of Jean-Charles de Menezes. We saw it in the, the, her role in, as you outlined with Daniel Morgan, in the Sarah Everard protests, all of that. And it's important to mention that Cressida Dick is not an outlier. You know, that is the kind of, she's sort of fulfilling the role that the commissioner of the Met Police holds. My answer to why now would be, we have a, we've got a movement. I think that we have seen such a vibrant and multiracial, cross-geographical movement that has forced into the public conversation a genuine and far overdue conversation about the role that police is given in our society and the nature of the institution as an institution of state violence. You know, Kill the Bill, Black Lives Matter. These are some of the largest protest movements that we have seen in this in recent history in this country, with the exception of maybe the climate movement. And, and the message is very clear. We do not want our communities over-policed anymore. We do not want to endow the police with the amount of power that they have. And we do not want the police to be deployed to deal with social problems. And because we know that this is how our community members are treated by the police. And because we know that they do not keep us safe. And in fact, they actually oftentimes put us in danger. These are the reasons why we are making these demands and why we are seeing these movements uh, coalesce at this moment. And so this has created a situation and created the political space for Sadiq Khan to, to come out against the police commissioner, something that would have been unthinkable not that long ago. You know, this isn't the first time that Sadiq Khan has been presented with evidence that there's something wrong in the Met Police. It's just that now the political climate has changed and space has been created by ordinary people in order to make it so that he is able to make a statement like that and place that kind of pressure on him. And I think that this is a really important example when we think about how how social change um, happens. And I think specifically on the issue of policing, it's a really good example because, you know, if you cast your mind back to the Corbyn leadership, the Corbyn leadership changed the conversation on many different issues in society and on the economy. But they always remained very conservative on the issue of policing. It was seen as a no-go topic. In fact, they often actually in, talked about increasing funding to, to the police under the banner of an anti-austerity politics. And they rightfully attracted criticism from minority communities for doing that. It was seen as a kind of comms suicide to criticize the police just, you know, not that long ago, just a few years ago. And especially to criticize the police from the position of the left and from the position of racial justice. And yet within six months of Jeremy Corbyn losing the general election, we see apparently this issue that is so stigmatized and that will lose pop so much popularity, we saw it galvanize. One of the biggest cross-generational, cross-geographic, diverse movements, street movements um, that we have seen with the demands to reduce police power and hold police accountable. So, so how did this thing that, that was unimaginable, even within the context 
of a political movement of Corbynism that, that questioned a lot of social and political and economic orthodoxies. How did that suddenly become imaginable? And it didn't come from, you know, the right comms from the people in power. It came from a mobilized and and an organized demonstration of power, of people power on the streets, in, in public discourse, in media, and within our our communities. And so this just tells me that in so many cases, we shouldn't see ourselves as constantly having to triangulate those in power, but rather we actually do have the power in many contexts, especially when we speak with moral clarity to lead politicians like Khan rather than, than be led by them. That's why at this moment we are seeing that shift at the top. Obviously, I agree with a lot of that sentiment. Is there not a dangerous sort of misreading what this opposition to the police is about? This is more people want the police to be less corrupt. They want them to be less racist. They want them to be less misogynist. But I'm not quite sure that amounts to opposition, opposition to funding them properly. So do you, do you not worry that potentially you, you could be taking the wrong lessons from, from this very, very justified outrage at what's been going on in the Metropolitan Police? Well, I think what I'm I'm talking about is the conversations that we are having on the streets and the conversations that are being had in public discourse. I don't ever expect Sadiq Khan to to come out and understand and and back those kinds of arguments because of the institutional position that he holds and also because of his actual polit- particular politics. But the space that has been created by us, and and I would argue that. For many of those mobilizations, they have been about a systemic critique of the police. They have been embedded in this idea that the police is being deployed to solve problems that are not policing problems. That issues like poverty, issues like health crises, like drugs, et cetera, et cetera. The police are not really the the institution that can effectively address that and that the unquestioning power that we give to police and society, the fact that in any court case, especially if it's against the police, the word of the police is always held up against the word of someone who is saying that they have been abused by the police, which we know happens, that the word of the police is taken almost unquestioningly. And that orthodoxy is being rattled. And that question of defunding the police, it's about saying that we don't want the police to be used in the way that they are being used. We don't want issues of poverty, issues of drugs, these kinds of issues that are social and health and economic issues to be met with violence. And I think that is the claim that is being made by these popular movements. And I think that those popular movements are triggering the space where conversations that had been previously very stigmatized um, are actually starting to happen. What we agree on is that we should be very skeptical of anything the police say. And also, I mean, what we agree on is that there is loads of things that the police are currently doing that other social services should be doing. I suppose I come from them at a different angle, which is that the demand should more be to properly fund mental health services and to properly fund people who can go to domestic violence situations and actually serve a useful purpose instead of taking the funding out of one institution. But we could talk about this all night. We've had this conversation. I like coming back to this conversation as we, as we come to these different stories, but there's a lot of common ground there. Next story. Boris Johnson has attempted to shore up his premiership by promoting a bunch of wrong-uns. It's all an effort to try to get his MPs back on side. I'll take you through the key hires. The new chief whip, 
is Chris Heaton-Harris. As Chief Whip, his job will be to enforce discipline among unruly Tory MPs. That's a little ironic, given he was previously caught bragging about encouraging a friend to launch a campaign against the Tories in a 2012 by-election. That footage was recorded secretly by Greenpeace. Heaton Harris explains in, in the clip that he encouraged his friend James Dellingpole to threaten to stand in the constituency in order to get opposition to wind farms up the political agenda. Dellingpole is a notorious climate sceptic and former editor at Breitbart UK. You can see what kind of guy um, Heaton Harris is. Heaton Harris will have as his deputy Chris Pincher. Pincher is accused of having a particularly aggressive strategy to get MPs to vote his, his way. In 2019, he was accused of trying to get dirt on Johnny Mercer from one of Mercer's former army colleagues. When the colleague told Johnny Mercer of the approach, the Whip's office were forced to apologise. One man leaving the Whip's office is Mark Spencer. He has moved to become leader of the Commons. In that role, he will have oversight over the parliamentary complaints process, which has raised eyebrows given he is the subject of a racism allegation by Nuzgani MP. He is reported to have told her she was demoted because her, quote, Muslim woman minister status was making colleagues feel uncomfortable. Spencer will replace Jacob Rees-Mogg, who will move to become Minister for Brexit Opportunities and Government Efficiency, or the bogey minister. In 2019, Rees-Mogg caused controversy by retweeting a speech from the far-right German alternative for Deutschland. I'm sure he will have no problem engaging with the Social Democrats who now run Europe's largest economy. One clear winner from the reshuffle is Michael Ellis. He's been promoted from Paymaster General to Minister at the Cabinet Office. Ellis was the MP who stood in for Boris Johnson at the dispatch box after it was revealed Johnson had attended a lockdown party with 100 invitees. This is presumably his reward for taking that hit. We also have a new housing minister. He's Stuart Andrew. In 2016, Andrew voted against an amendment requiring rental properties be fit for human habitation, and he has no background in housing policy. He is, however, a landlord. I have just two more characters for you. Leah Nicky has been appointed a parliamentary private secretary, or PPS, to Boris Johnson. She was elected in 2019 to represent Great Grimsby and gave this interesting defence of Boris Johnson's Savile slur on Radio 5 last week. I have to say, actually, on Friday when Sakia popped up in Grimsby, the social media in Grimsby for local people was, this was absolutely and utterly the number one issue for people saying, why is he coming here? We don't want him. We don't want him to be the Labour Party leader. He did this with, um, with the CPS. Um, he should be ashamed. Uh, and uh, and what, that, what, that was a, a huge, a huge shock. Was that after, was that after PMQs? That was uh, not PMQs. Was that after Boris Johnson had said this, that they were saying... It was before. It was, it was on Friday before. Bef yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, before he said that, yeah. People on the street, on the doorstep in Grimsby, were all going on about Jimmy Savile. They were. 
absolutely. And and uh, and that shocked Last... me. But people had not forgotten about that, and people were saying, "We don't want that person uh, as the Labour Party leader, and we certainly don't want him to Jimmy be Savile the was prime minister." Essentially, the talk of the town last Friday. Yes, absolutely. That is the kind of performance that gets you promoted in the current Conservative Party. Um, Also elected in 2019, we have new PPS, Joy Morrissey. Um, She caused controversy in December when she publicly attacked Chris Whitty. That was in response to Whitty's advice that people prioritise contexts that matter. So in response to that, she tweeted, perhaps the unelected COVID public health spokesperson should defer to what our elected members of parliament and the prime minister have decided. I know it's difficult to remember, but that's how democracy works. This is not a public health socialist state. Remember that tweet was was um, prompted not by any new rules that anyone had laid down, but simply from for Chris Whitty asking a question at a Downing Street press conference where they said, you know, given Omicron's around, would you advise people to maybe think about which events they think are most important to go to. And he was like, yeah. And now she thinks that's the sign of a public health socialist state. Dahlia, do you think this is the team that will save Boris Johnson's premiership? It sits within the context. You know, this decision to to promote this sort of motley crew sits within the decision that we've discussed throughout the show, which is him turning to the hardest parts of his faction, of his faction within the conservative base, in order to appeal to them, in order to try and consolidate his power within the party. It's the same logic that led him to end isolation rules early. It's the same logic behind the Savile slur. It's clear that this is part and parcel of a broader strategy. It's not haphazard. It's not gaffes. It's not it's not accidental. And when we look at these particular figures, we are seeing him essentially cranking up the the culture war to its maximum and finding the foot soldiers that will most happily go out and pursue that and push that button and and sort of play that that angle up and and that alongside their loyalty to Johnson in his mo- this moment is is why they've been promoted. But it's it's also perhaps because these are the only people with nothing really to lose in terms of their political reputation by joining Johnson when he's this unpopular. And so when we think about will this save his premiership, we have to ask, save his premiership from who? We have to remember that, you know, we are several years out from from a general election. That's not really on the purview right now. Whilst general public opinion matters, of course, the more urgent issue for Johnson right now is the prospect of a leadership challenge, which will be adjudicated by Conservative Party members. And so that's what's going to be in his crosshairs. That's what's going to be in his focus. And that's that's his audience right now. That And so that's the question that we should be asking, not will this save his premiership in the eyes of the public, but will it save his premiership in the eyes of the factions of the Tory base that he needs to come out and back him and vote for him in the case of a leadership challenge? And that's a much trickier question that I can't say I necessarily have the answer to because I can't say that I know what they are thinking and I know what they're sort of in how they're receiving what we're what we're seeing right now. But that's the strategy he's deploying, and it's probably the only strategy that could work. And so when you look at it that way, uh, it becomes a bit clearer as to why he would do something that to most of us looks like a kind of bizarre move if you're trying to 
become more likable or recover your reputation amongst the general public. That's not really what's happening here. Boris Johnson is in survival mode and he's in survival mode with the Conservative Party membership, the Conservative Party base. Those are his, that's his audience right now. And so within that context, it's a much blurrier question about whether or not that call will work because we're not talking about the general public, which I think are looking at, at this and thinking, oh, he's just going further down the rabbit hole. He's really not helping himself. But we're not the ones that have the power to decide at this point whether or not he's going to get what he wants because we're not Conservative Party members. You know who I feel sorry for in all of this? Michael Fabricant. Because we, we, we've just shown you all of these sort of non-entities conservative backbenchers who suddenly got promoted because they were willing to go on the radio and say something ridiculous in Boris Johnson's defense, like Keir Starmer and Jimmy Savile was the number one issue in Grimsby before Boris Johnson mentioned it at BMQs. And therefore he was right to remember it because people don't forget, forget what? The, 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 the whole point of this story is that there's not really much to remember. There's not much substance to it. But Michael Fabricant, of all of them, went on and I think really gave it his all. You know, you watch yeah. that, it was sort of like, I felt like almost, you know, you're watching a, a kid do their pantomime at school and you're thinking, you know, this might be rubbish, it might be nonsense, might be totally unconvincing, but they are really giving this their all. And he got nothing. You know, they could have at least made yeah. it a PPS, mm. something like that, give him, give him a made-up <laughs> job, but he's out in the cold, did all of that for nothing. Imagine being a liability at this moment. How absurd do you have to be to be considered a liability in this <laughs> sea of liability that is Boris Johnson's premiership right now? Like that is, I mean, it's embarrassing, but I don't think that a man like that has shame. So he's fine, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, so, so you've got to, Boris. Sorry, Michael Fabricant. Now's the time for the big guns. This is this is sort of Nadine Doris moment. Everything's pretty sensitive right now. Maybe we'll promote you when when things have quietened down a little bit. We have a final story for you now. It broke just as the show started. It's that. The Met Police have announced they have identified more than 50 people who may have broken rules in Downing Street during lockdown. According to The Guardian, the Met will soon demand that they answer their questions. The investigation has discovered these potential lawbreakers is now called Operation Hillman, and it is looking into eight parties that could have breached the strict lockdown regulations. Those identified will be sent formal questionnaires with a legal status and be asked to give their version of events. Of course, Boris and Carrie Johnson are very likely to be recipients because they're involved in a lot of these parties and in some ways quite centrally. Scotland Yard have said they may contact even more people in the coming weeks if someone is found to have breached the rules. They'd normally receive a fixed penalty notice unless they have a reasonable excuse. Now, this, this is very interesting because Downing Street has confirmed that the public will be told if Johnson is fined. At the same time, sources from within Downing Street are briefing that he won't resign if he's found to have broken the law. Many Tory MPs, though, have also said he should be removed from office if it turns out he broke the law. So if he does get a fine, we're all you know, about to find out if those Tories will put their money where their mouth is. Will they hold their nerve or will they, will they get rid of their, well, potentially, obviously we don't know yet, but possibly law-breaking Prime Minister? Dahlia, there's still a lot of people being investigated by the police. We heard, I think, that they were told by, I think it was Martin Reynolds, don't 
I think it was Martin Reynolds. It could, could have potentially been another leading figure, but one of the sort of top civil servants who's recently left Downing Street telling them, don't worry, it'll just be a hundred pound fine. Nothing will come of it. But I mean, if, if you get 50 fixed notes, fixed penalty notices, that's a big story, isn't it? It's also not about the £100 fine, is it? It's about the guilty verdict. It's about the fact, it's about what that represents. You know, the fear here is not, oh my God, am I going to be 100 quid out of pocket? The fear is now there is no route out. There is no way out. The police investigated you. And, you know, not that I'm someone who trusts everything the police say, but I think the last thing the police want to actually do or have a vested interest in doing is prosecuting a conservative MP. Uh, that is, you know, they will do that only if they have no other option and if they can't escape it. And so I think that is going to be a form of baggage that will be very difficult to, to shake off. And I think what Boris Johnson is probably, the calculation that he's probably making right now, I think it's probably, it's, it's not going to be a surprise that this will come to light because he know despite his protestations, he knew exactly what he did. He knew where this was going. He knew there was a police investigation. I think what we are going to see, the calculation that he is probably going to make is, as we sort of discussed throughout the show, is this ramping up of the culture wars, ramping up of the, the arenas where he can consolidate the parts of his base that if he has a shot of staying leader, he needs to come out to bat for him. You know, it's a very conservative, it's a small group of people. It's a very committed group of people. So I think that that's probably going to be the tack that he takes because the game of sort of trying to deny it, the game of trying to weasel out of it to excuse it, that's over. And so the question is, can he give enough to the base to make them still invested in him remaining as prime minister? So that's the key question. And that's going to decide uh, what happens uh, over the coming few months. And I'm sure that will be the subject of many shows to come. Dahlia, it's been wonderful spending the evening with you today. Slightly longer show than usual. I would never complain. The longer I get to spend with you guys, the better. And if you do complain, wait until the show has ended. Otherwise, it'd be awkward. Thank you so much for watching tonight. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.